You think you've got issues? Hi, I'm Dr. Laurie Appel. Welcome to my podcast, where we will be talking about a variety of mental health issues, because, you know, we've all got issues. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the most common mental health issues, anxiety. Given our current circumstances, this is indeed a timely subject. Today's podcast will focus on understanding anxiety. In future podcasts, we're going to have a guest on to talk specifically about treatment. So to begin with, anxiety disorders are actually the most common mental health issues in the United States, affecting over 40 million adults ages 18 and older, or about 18% of the population. Now, there is a huge difference between having anxiety and having an anxiety disorder. I mean, we all have anxiety. It's actually a normal part of living. It's the body's way of telling us that something isn't right. In fact, it is actually a survival mechanism. Without it, we wouldn't have survived as a species because we wouldn't have avoided danger. I mean, can you imagine you're facing off with a saber-toothed tiger and you just mm, chill? Not a great idea. You need to respond and quickly. That is what anxiety does. In its most simplistic terms, anxiety activates the fight or flight response, which releases adrenaline and activates the sympathetic nervous system. Why is this good? Because it prioritizes the blood supply, making sure that oxygenated blood is available in the arms and legs for a quick getaway, and also in the brain to help us make split-second decisions. It prepares you to face an intense situation by sharpening your senses. You're running on all cylinders. And when the situation is over, your more chill, parasympathetic nervous system kicks in, telling your body to rest and digest, calming your organs and putting the brakes on those cylinders. Problems occur, however, when you can't pump the brakes on your sympathetic nervous system, causing you to perceive threat where there is none or to respond in a heightened way to even small dangers. And as long as the body perceives a threat, whether it's a major threat, a minor threat, or even a false alarm, the gas pedal on the nervous system stays engaged and you feel on edge or anxious. Now, I ask all my patients with anxiety in the beginning of treatment if they think that anxiety is a good, is a good thing or a bad thing. And usually people just respond that it's a bad thing. But recently, a very bright teenager of mine said both and elaborated that it's a good thing in that it keeps us from doing stupid things taking unnecessary risks, but it's a bad thing if it's too much. Aha. But what is too much? How do we differentiate between good, normal amount of anxiety, like, of course, we're all anxious about COVID, versus anxiety that is a diagnosable problem? I think the simplest answer is that if your anxiety becomes overwhelming and persistent and interferes with your regular activities, like work and relationships, you probably need to get some help for it. Now, what causes some people to have anxiety that crosses over this line? Researchers are learning that anxiety disorders do run in families and that they have a biological basis, much like allergies or diabetes and other disorders. But it's more complicated than this. There's actually a complex set of risk factors, including genetics, but also brain chemistry, personality, and life events. We also know that anxiety takes several forms, which I'm going to just briefly outline for you. So first, there's generalized anxiety disorder, which is the kind of persistent and excessive worry that is difficult to control. You know, the worst case scenarios and the, the, the what-if-er types. These folks have persistent 
excessive, and unrealistic worry about everyday things. They feel tense and worried even when there is no apparent reason for concern. They're constantly worried about money or their health or their family or work or friends or other issues. And they can't stop the worry cycle even when they know that their anxiety is more intense than the situation warrants. Somatic complaints like headaches or stomach aches are also common among folks with generalized anxiety disorder. Now, these people usually function pretty well. They just tend to avoid situations or don't take advantage of opportunities due to they worry to, due to their worries, and they suffer needlessly because they're worrying all the time. So even though they hold jobs and they have social lives, they may be suffering unnecessarily, and they're just not getting as much out of life as they could be. Another form of anxiety is called panic disorder, which is diagnosed in people who experience spontaneous, out-of-the-blue panic attacks and then are consumed with worry that those attacks will reoccur. Now, panic attacks are very physical and experienced by people in many different forms. Some people feel a pounding or a racing heart, or they may sweat or have chills or feel like they're trembling or have breathing difficulties or dizziness tingly or numb feelings, chest or stomach pains, or nausea. Now, because these experiences are really scary, people with panic attacks can begin to avoid situations in which they worry that those attacks might occur. Or they end up taking several trips to the emergency room worrying that, say, they're having a heart attack. Now, at its worst, it can develop into agoraphobia, when someone is literally homebound in order to avoid a potential panic attack. Now, post-traumatic stress is another type of anxiety disorder, which develops when someone has experienced a traumatic event that causes flashbacks, nightmares, intrusive memories, avoidance behaviors, and depression. Now, obviously, this is expected for anyone who's experienced trauma, but those with post-traumatic stress continue to experience those symptoms for months or even years following the initial event. And it's particularly common among military personnel, first responders, and individuals who have been assaulted, especially those who have been sexually assaulted. And then finally, there's social anxiety, which has become much more recognized as a disorder of late. People with social anxiety have intense fear about being judged or negatively evaluated or possibly being rejected by other people. They worry constantly about being viewed as stupid or awkward or boring or annoying. So, of course, they avoid social situations, especially new ones, preferring to be around those people who are already in their comfort zone and with whom they feel safe. Now, this is the second most commonly diagnosed anxiety disorder, and it usually starts, not surprisingly, in the teen years when, as we can all remember, we are the most self-conscious. Problematically, however, these folks are the least likely to seek treatment because, of course, that would involve meeting a new person and having a difficult conversation. Now, what do all these anxiety disorders have in common? They have the common theme of difficulty tolerating uncertainty. Therefore, people with anxiety tend to try to plan or control things or avoid situations they can't control. They try to stay within the realm of their comfort zone where they know what to expect and they have a sense of control. But then, unfortunately, that person's world may become narrower and narrower as the disorder progresses. Now, treatment of anxiety disorders pretty much always involves facing those uncertainties and the fears and going beyond one's comfort zone. So therapy with anxious folks can be very complicated as you're asking your client to experience the very discomfort they are trying to avoid. 
People come to therapy to get relief from pain and suffering. And yet, as a psychologist, I am presenting to them that the only way over their anxiety is right through it. So I'm asking my clients to intentionally experience discomfort, which is a big ask. But before we get to the nitty-gritty of treatment of anxiety, there are some ways in general to reduce one's overall anxiety and to buffer the discomfort that arises. So let's talk about these. Now, there are no two psychologists who would prescribe exactly the same strategies, and of course, every individual is unique in terms of what is effective for them specifically. But there are strategies that are generally recognized as helpful for people struggling with anxiety. In order to understand why these strategies work, it's important to have some information about the biopsychosocial basis of anxiety. Now, in previous episodes, I've explained that most problems or mental health issues have a biopsychosocial underpinning. That is, for any problem, anxiety or depression, there is an interconnection between biology, psychology, and socio-environmental factors. So for anxiety, for instance, there may be a biological predisposition to anxiety due to genetic factors, like a loaded gun of sorts that an event or series of events or developmental stage might trigger into a full-blown anxiety disorder. There may also be a sort of temperamental factor, like some people are just born with a heightened sensitivity to stress. Then there are the psychological factors. And by psychological, I mean the thoughts and beliefs about our experiences. These beliefs and thoughts affect our sense of control over our environment. How I explain it to my clients is that people with anxiety are inclined to overestimate the potential for danger while at the same time underestimating their capacity to cope. And within this context of perceived danger, people also have thoughts about their control over a situation and that perceived control over stressful life circumstances rather than the presence of a stressor alone is key. And remember, both the estimation of danger and lack of control may or may not be accurate. What is important psychologically is the person's perceptions, that is their thoughts and beliefs about the degree of danger and their degree of control. Now, finally, in terms of our social environment, well, that also gives us cues as we're growing up about how dangerous the world is and how we can cope with dangers. The family, the culture, the community in which we grow tell us about how safe or dangerous the world is and how we as individuals can cope. So let's say, for instance, you had an overprotective parent who was always reminding you of how dangerous things were or how you could be hurt. You might grow up to perceive the world as a dangerous place. Then, if that same parent, rather than calmly addressing a problem you had, made a big deal of it or rushed to solve it for you, you might grow to believe that you are incapable of handling your own problems. Now, but as I said earlier, one's individual psychology and one's temperament also play a factor so that two children from the same household may respond very differently. Like, let's take an example from a client of mine. This particular client grew up in a household in which one parent was very volatile, responding to any slight provocation with a rage that terrified the children. My client would hide in fright whenever a problem came up, afraid of his parents that were that parent's potential rageful response. Growing up, he continued this pattern of fear and avoidance. And because his tendency was to hide and to try to play it safe, he never developed any confidence to deal with unpleasant, scary, uncomfortable situations. Now, this was an effective survival mechanism as a child dealing with a rageful parent, but it actually crippled him as an adult. 
Now, this client had a sibling. It was much more confrontational. This sibling was just temperamentally more aggressive and dominant. So he charged ahead into the face of danger and grew up to be confident, but also confrontational and aggressive, probably identifying with the aggressor, but that's a whole other topic. Anyway, even though they were raised in the same household with the same set of circumstances and the same parents, these two siblings had very different dynamics as adults. One was anxious and avoidant, and the other was aggressive and confrontational. Now, when we deal with anxiety, we really need to deal with all three zones or spheres, the biological, the psychological, and the social or environmental. The general techniques that I'm going to discuss now are recognized by most professionals as a way to address one or more of these spheres. So first, genetic predisposition or our biology. Obviously, we can't change our genetic predisposition, but we can address our present biology by making changes in our life to minimize any biological triggers and to maximize physical buffers to anxiety. Some people may require psychotropic medication to help with their anxiety, and your psychologist would refer you to the appropriate psychiatrist to talk about this. However, for non-pharmaceutical methods, there are things that we can all do to manage even non-diagnosable anxiety or an anxiety disorder. These include things like daily exercise. Daily exercise increases serotonin, which is the neurotransmitter that is responsible for a sense of well-being. Now, this exercise must be enough of an aerobic push to release those neurotransmitters. So think like HIIT workouts or interval training. Yoga is also great technique because it helps you to learn to breathe in ways that calm the sympathetic nervous system and to breathe into the discomfort that you're experiencing when you're holding a pose rather than bracing against it because bracing only serves to rev up our sympathetic nervous system. Now, yoga is one of many practices that elicit what is called the relaxation response. Other things that do that are things like aromatherapy, painting, listening to music, massage, meditation, knitting, gardening. All of those kinds of things induce the relaxation response. They calm the sympathetic nervous system. Diet, also really important. I mean, obviously cut back on caffeinated beverages if you have anxiety, but in general, a healthy, and by that I mean a non-processed food-based diet, can do wonders for our our overall well-being. Our gut has as many, if not more, neurotransmitters than our brain. In fact, research has shown that 95% of the body's serotonin is found in the bowels. The gut is sometimes called the second brain, so what we put into it counts. Eat real food. Now, let's get on to the psychology. For your overall psychological well-being, there are also a lot of things that we can do. Again, exercise is great. Now, as I said before, it can release serotonin, but it can also enhance your belief in yourself and your confidence, which, given the influence of self-confidence on anxiety, can make a huge difference in our our perception of our ability to cope with problems. Now, you can also make a practice of questioning your thought patterns in order to detect what is rational and what is irrational. Some of the best ways to do this are to write by journaling regularly, which can help you to do two things. One, 
It can help you to identify what your triggers to anxiety are. You can write down when you start to feel anxious and try to note what was going on in your environment or in your head. And number two, by writing, it helps you to step away from your thoughts and look at them more objectively and realistically. Because as you recall, anxiety is often a problem of perception, overestimating danger, underestimating coping. Now, you can also use a journal or talking with people to begin to explore concepts that may affect your anxiety, such as perfectionism or chronic negativity or the need for approval or the need for control. You can then begin to address these concepts. Now, this is a big part of what we do in therapy, aiming for, say, doing your best as opposed to being perfect or learning to accept the things that you cannot control or replacing negative thoughts with a positive attitude, or putting things in perspective so it seems less intimidating. I often ask my clients, so what's the worst that could happen? Say in a social situation, you'll be embarrassed and uncomfortable, rather than humiliated, which is where they may go in their head. And this will last for a few minutes or a few hours, not forever, which is what goes on in their head. So in this way, people can get more realistic about the worst that can happen. Embarrassment for a few hours as opposed to humiliated forever. Now, finally, you can make some changes in your social environment. You can begin to incorporate humor into your daily life. It's both a good way of initiating the parasympathetic nervous system, you know, the rest and relax one, um, and also laughing actually encourages diaphragmatic or deep breathing. And it's also a way of putting things in perspective. When we use humor, it helps to put things in perspective. A good laugh goes a long way. You can also get involved. Volunteering is a great way to manage stress. It also helps you to find a social network. And again, it puts things in perspective. You're looking at some other people's suffering, and it helps to put your life in perspective. Now, finally, and this is very, very important in today's climate, you can turn down the volume on things in your environment that escalate your stress, such as sensationalized news stories. You can still stay informed, but you can choose the sources that will not automatically cause your sympathetic nervous system to react. Now, we obviously cannot avoid uncomfortable and negative stories or events, but we can avoid sensationalism. And we can surround ourselves with people who calm us and make us feel safe and avoid or at least limit contact with people who rev you up with negativity or drama. So now all of the things that I've described above are great strategies for buffering anxiety, both just general anxiety that we all experience and anxiety that is diagnosable. But as I said in the beginning, the real challenge of therapy and the place where real growth occurs is when we face our fears. This is the topic of our next podcast, when we'll have a special guest. And we're going to be talking about how different therapies and different therapists work with people to help them face their fears and manage their anxiety more effectively. All right. Well, that is a wrap for today. Thanks so much for listening. And I will see you next podcast. Dr. Laurie Appel is a licensed psychologist in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Her license and practice information is available on her website, laurieappelpsyd.com. 
All information provided on Dr. Laurie's podcast is solely for educational and informational purposes and is not meant to serve as psychological counseling. If you have personal issues you would like to explore, please contact a licensed mental health professional in your state.